Hi, this is Dory Clark, author of Entrepreneurial. You're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Dory Clark. The one and only Dory Clark helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was honored as the number one communication coach in the world at the Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Awards. She teaches at Duke and Columbia's business schools and is the author of the award-winning trilogy, Stand Out, Reinventing You, and Entrepreneurial You. She's a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and consults and speaks for clients such as Google, Yale University, and the World Bank. She's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, a producer of multiple granny-women jazz albums, and a Broadway investor. Dory lives in New York City with her cats and is here to talk to you today about entrepreneurial you. Welcome, Dory. Hey, Bill. So glad to be here. Glad to have you. It's a real thrill today. And I'd love to know when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? Actually, one person who comes to mind that has probably influenced a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners, although maybe not when they were a kid, was uh, Tony Robbins. Because when I was 13, my friend's mom had a copy of Unlimited Power lying around and I picked it up and was flipping through it and she saw me and she got so excited because I guess her daughter was like not at all interested. And so she was like, oh, you must read this. You must borrow this. She said, if you read this when 13, this is going to be incredible. You're going to be unstoppable. And of course, I was intrigued by her enthusiasm. So I did read the book and I loved it. And I even ended up briefly creating a band, a really not good band with my friend, with said friend called The Unlimited Powers. So that's my answer. How about that? When you remember reading the book, what were some ideas that were that stood out for you? Because it is a book that is incredibly insightful and it delivers NLP techniques in a way that makes them very accessible for people. And he tells such great dramatic stories of his own rise and breakthrough. What stands out for you in that book? I think the biggest thing, which is, of course, not a revelation to probably any grown up or a person who has studied Buddhism, but I had just never at 13 been presented so clearly with the idea before that you can choose your reactions to things. You can be really conscious of how you think about things and how you interpret them. And I thought that was just mind blowing. And I, I I definitely cottoned on to that. And that has been very useful to be aware of. That's fabulous. There is that small little gap between stimulus and response that when we're conscious, we can do anything we want between stimulus and response. So that if somebody upsets you or said something upsetting, you get to choose how to respond rather than just react the same way. Do you happen to recall that where you use that, maybe early in your career, where there was a situation that came up and typically you would have responded or reacted one way, but you remembered that and it allowed you to pivot, change, respond in a way that was really beneficial for you and maybe even the other person involved? I think the way that I deployed it mainly, there might certainly be micro examples of this, but for me, where it was particularly useful was not so much in day-to-day interpersonal reactions where it's like, oh, I could be mad here, but I'm going to try to be calm or something like that. It was really more understanding that also other people 
take their cues from us in a really big way. Like it's almost stunning the extent to which other people just, they're spending a lot of time looking around and scanning the horizon to see what's everybody else doing? What's everybody else thinking? And as a result, if you are forceful and confident in what you are doing or how you're being in the world, usually almost everybody will give you the benefit of the doubt. And that is incredibly powerful. I think especially for there's just so many people that struggle with self-esteem or they struggle with imposter syndrome. I think certainly there's a lot of people who experience this. For me, it it would be really easy to go through the world being paranoid about how are people thinking about me or how are they reacting to me or certainly being a kid and growing up and being gay in this little town in the South. And I just realized what if I am leading with confidence, everybody else is going to treat me just fine because they usually don't have a the sort of strength to push back against that. Like it's the people who want to cause trouble. It's because they're looking for signs of weakness in you. And if they don't find them, they are almost never going to cause a problem because you are signaling how you want to be treated. And I think that has been what's been most useful. That's fabulous. Dory, is there a quote that you look to that guides you or inspires you in the world today? There's one bill that I literally just used this morning. And so it's it's one that I like a lot. And and so I will deploy it here. It's a quote from, from William Gibson. And it's, uh, the, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And for me, that's always a really powerful reminder that things, we can actually oftentimes see the direction of things. We just have to know where to look. We just have to be cognizant of that and to understand that there there is often a, a lag time. And if we know how to navigate that, it enables us both to have a lens into the future and to just have a little bit more perspective about how things might unfold. That's interesting. Your lens into the future makes me think that if we have insights into the present, that helps us plan how we're going to put our resources against building something into the future. Absolutely. Yeah. How has that helped guide a way that, you know, one of the things that I love reading about your book, Entrepreneurial You, is you talk about your focus. And it's just a small couple sentences you talk about. You just have two projects every six month period. And that is something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs and small business leaders can look at and say, wow, those are your two major projects. And then you may do other things. You may write other articles. They may be in support of that, but you really have two major goals to shoot for and everything else organizes around that. How is that quote by William Gibson about the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed, helped you see more clearly what's going on in the present, specifically your work? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that ultimately when it comes to trends or forecasting or things like that, way that I like to think about it, I got probably like a lot of us during COVID very obsessed with the idea of forecasting and risk prediction and risk mitigation and things like that. I was just so dumbfounded by how something that I did not perceive as a huge deal when I first heard about it. I, I, I heard the reports about this thing in China and I thought, oh, it's just like SARS. That, that was the frame I had in my mind. So it's okay, well, people are going to get a little hysterical about it. And then a month or two later, it's going to go away. And obviously it turned out not to be that. And for the last year, everybody's lives have been massively unsettled and disrupted. And so I got uh, very, very obsessed with thinking about, okay, how, well, how can I gather better data? How can I make better predictions? And one 
something that stood out to me. There was a guy that I talked to, and he was someone who very early on was very cognizant of the threat that COVID presented. Now, there, there's plenty of people that were that were hyped up about the threat because they're just generally paranoid. But the key is like, how can you be paranoid where it's warranted and not paranoid where it's not? Like, how do you have that discretion and the, the distinction between it? And the reason that he was attuned to this is that he had a friend and the friend was a venture capitalist who had holdings in China. And the friend was on the board of a company in China that started having massive supply chain issues. And so the friend basically tipped him off early. Look, however far this thing spreads, the the supply chain disruptions in China, which is the heart of the the supply chain, this is going to cause problems everywhere. This is going to be a much bigger deal than people think it will be. And so the guy that I know was therefore attuned. And I realized, oh, okay. He, He had reliable information from a knowledgeable inside source. The future was in China faster than it was other places. And so I try to be mindful of that. And so, in fact, I have, we're going to have a whole episode, a whole future episode talking about this more, but I have a book that I'm working on now called The Long Game, which is coming out in September. And I have a chapter in it talking about networks and relationships. And I really focus in on this question of how do you build relationships with seemingly irrelevant people? Because those are often the most powerful because they're giving you access to insights that that just if you don't otherwise have the ability to tap them by gaining them, it's a real strategic advantage. I want everyone listening to understand you probably don't reach out to people and say, I'm looking to add five more seemingly insignificant relationships to my life right now. Would you like to be one? That's probably not the approach to take. But I think you're being open to conversations with people who you have no preconceived idea as to how you might exchange value. But by being extra sensitive to it, you might pick up ideas and insights and opportunities that might not otherwise come your way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And also the issue is that for a lot of successful professionals, they're very goal-driven, right? Which obviously makes sense. That's a good way to become successful. But it also means that you do sometimes have some blinders on. And so there is a tendency, the worst networkers, the kind of trashy networkers are the things like, oh, I need a job tomorrow. So I'm going to make friends with you and then I'm going to hit you up. And everybody hates those people. But the more sophisticated version of that are people who are successful professionals that nonetheless, their time frame is longer, but it's not dissimilar in the sense that, oh, Bill's in my industry and I don't know exactly what Bill can do for me, but Bill can probably do something for me. And so let's make friends. What I'm talking about is the importance of connecting and making friends with people that just literally make no sense. And for no rational reason, would you think, oh, I can definitely get something out of this. But those are the kind of wild card relationships that can actually be transformative. Give me three or four examples, just like titles or positions or people that you may have encountered without going into names, of course, but just to to give people's minds a jog into this area that's probably unfamiliar for people who are very focused on intentional networking. Yeah, absolutely. A place that's often very very good for something like this is alumni gatherings or alumni organizations, because you have something in common. You have something, some basis to talk about things with. But typically in a college, people are ending up in radically different places. And you might be in the business world, but you find somebody who's become a professional comedian. You find somebody who's become an astronaut. You find somebody who's a documentary filmmaker. You find somebody who's a ballet dancer. Whatever it is, it's what could that person ever do? 
do for me. And that's where it gets juicy. I get it. I get it. That's fabulous. Now, one person who you talked about in Entrepreneurial You, Jason Kleinhart, had an experience where he was someone who got very excited by picking up information about how easy it was to connect with people and how easy it was to record them and create an online product. And he thought his business model was pretty clear. He was going to pay people $1,000, 10 people $1,000 to be guests on his product. And then he was going to sell it for $9.97 each and then give some of that commission that was sold to the people who contributed. However, it didn't turn out the way he expected because he would have needed, what, 10 or 11 sales in order to break even. And he wrote an article where was it in Forbes? I, I think so, yeah. Where it was entitled 997 11,000 zero. And that just tips off what happened. Can you fill in the details there, Dorian, and share with us what is it that he missed as he was looking at the future and missing some of the steps along the way? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. This is a great story. And it's one I'm grateful that Jared was willing to share in Entrepreneurial You because we had an extended conversation and really broke the process down. But as you indicated, he had great ideas, sound so good. He, he was a young entrepreneur. He had a good network. So he reached out to a bunch of people, myself included. And he reached out to people that he thought had particular expertise and a bit of a following. And he said, oh, okay, well, I want, I'm going to pay you a thousand bucks and I'll interview you about networking and you about creating a podcast and you about this and you about that. And he was creating a kind of all-star team. And he figured if he gave people a thousand bucks and the potential for some back-end revenue, who would say no? And of course he was right. Nobody said no. Everyone and say, oh, sure. Hey, why not, Jared? We liked him and get some money out of it. Awesome. So he created this, this idea, this kind of all-star, here you go, online course. And he launched it. And this sort of sad and tragic thing that all of us can probably empathize with in one way or another is he put it out, he launched it, and he got zero dollars in sales. Zero. It was just so horrible. And he realizes in retrospect that there were some key steps that he missed. One was just a timing thing. He launched it in late November and he realized like, oh, it's like a couple days before Thanksgiving in the US. Nobody's thinking about buying online courses. It's like the wrong time of year. But also he hadn't actually really tested the concept with his audience. He had thought, oh, this is a great combination of people and this is a great premise. But but he hadn't actually explored from the audience's perspective what their needs were, what they were looking for. And so there, there wasn't product market fit. And he consequently, it just didn't work. We need to realize, and, and this is something that I, a drum that I beat in Entrepreneurial You, that even though it is, this is the not sexy part, and this is the slow part, because when we're entrepreneurs, oftentimes we want to go fast. That's the whole point. It's exciting. We want to just do it. But testing things, piloting, doing the kind of tiny beta test to establish what the audience wants, what kind of language is most relevant to them and what speaks to them. All of these things, if we go slow, it enables us to go much faster later on because we have a higher degree of certainty that what we've created is actually something that's going to be viable. That is so important. And I hope that everyone listening really understands the fact that he did so many things right in developing a vision for the program, in interviewing people, in making sure that he was able to create something in a matter of weeks, not months or years. So he gets all thumbs up along every step of the way, but he forgot that crucial linkage to his marketplace. He even thought this would be a program he would love to buy. So he got the benefit there. He just didn't connect with his marketplace. And if you're in a position where you're looking to create something that really excites you, make sure you go through those steps of market research customer validation and making sure do a small test and see if people will give you a deposit 
or actually purchase it and fund it um, before you buy in order to hedge your own bet. So true. So Entrepreneurial You is really a great examination um, told in the chronology of your own journey of learning how to monetize expertise. And it's really important to understand that there's a process behind it. Many of people like Jared have gone before and will learn from those mistakes. So in reading the book, I just was very excited to understand both the ways that people succeeded and the mistakes that they made so that I could learn from other people's experience. Because that's really a fast feature. In a book, you're condensing months or years of a person's life experience and insights into a matter of hours. So it's just a fabulous read from that perspective. Another person you talk about actually did something that made the the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. His name was Jason Gaynard. And he actually took a huge risk because he was deeply in debt. He was like $250,000 in debt as an entrepreneur, probably on credit cards. And he had this opportunity to purchase or actually pre-purchase $84,000 worth of Tim Ferriss's books. And that story unfolds in a different way. Dory, share with me how Jared took way, took steps to hedge his bets and actually monetize that investment of $84,000. Yes, yes, absolutely. On the surface, this is a very risky move that Jason Gaynard put forward. You're in debt. The last thing you should be doing is spending $84,000. Why would you do such a thing? But it, it was it was a classic entrepreneurial moment. As I was interviewing him for Entrepreneurial You, he told me the story. And apparently at the time when Tim Ferriss would send out his emails for a while, they were coming at weird times. Like they, they would come at like four o'clock in the morning, East Coast time. And so Jason was like up early because he had this young daughter and she was awake. So he was just on his computer and the message came through where Tim Ferriss said, oh, I have this limited supply, this limited option because he was trying to do a, a book launch and he wanted to sell bulk copies of it. And there was like maybe two packages or something that you could buy. And Jason realized he's like, this is going to go fast. And so he's okay. <laughs> he just four o'clock in the morning, he hit the button and did it, which is wild and crazy. But what he realized and part of oh, what- Back up Dory and share what happens is he didn't just buy $84,000 worth of books. There was there were other things that came with that package. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So thank you. What the reward was that came for the package and what the sweetener was that Tim Ferriss would come and speak at your event, which is something that he did very rarely. This was a precious commodity. And Jason decided he would go for it. And he, he didn't have an event planned. He had no idea how he would leverage it. But what he realized, which actually was very clever, is, okay, Tim, Number one, Tim Ferriss is very popular. And number two, this is something that people don't get a lot. It's not like he's giving 100 talks a year. This is a rare thing. And so people are going to want it. And so he realized, okay, I'm going to be able to figure this out somehow. And what he ended up doing was basically creating an event on the back of this acquisition of Tim Ferriss's time. And he created a conference called Mastermind Talks. And he ended up basically reaching out to a cadre of other very high level business speakers with the lure. He didn't even pay them. He just said, do you want to hang out with Tim Ferriss? It was a draw, not just for the audience, but for other business authors. Some of them were friends with Tim Ferriss who didn't get to see him that often. Others were just admirers, but they're like, yeah, I want to hang out with him. So they all came for free. He was able to leverage this and he did some kind of 
like a competition. He's whoever gets voted the best speaker will get a prize, but nobody else even gets paid. It's just bonkers. And and then he charged actually multiple thousands of dollars for people to attend the conference. And so he more than made back his revenue through extremely creative thinking and essentially just leveraging a scarce resource that he had access to. It's really exciting because he took an impulsive move in the middle of the night. And Tim Ferriss, that many people know, is a real night owl. So he probably sent it in real time. It wasn't like that's when his listserv kicked off. And Jason saw it and capitalized on it because he was one of the few people on the East Coast anyway, who read it that early in the morning and took this risk to build the bridge after he had already decided that's where he wanted to go across this great chasm. And you talked about the fact that this is a very unusual thing to be able to make happen and to build. He had existing skills already. He had existing network and experiences that contributed to this. What were some of the other factors that you learned through the interview that made this more likely a probable win than a completely impossible win? If you walked up to someone on the street and said, listen, if you pay $84,000 now, you could call Tim Ferriss anytime in the next six months and he'll show up anywhere in the country for a full day. Hardly anyone would take that. But Jason had some things going for him. What else do you see from your perspective as someone who had actually had the interview with him? Yeah, absolutely. He did have some resources at, at play here. First of all, he was familiar with the event space. His business that he had previously was actually in the ticketing and ticketing resale business. So hosting events was not was was not some crazy, oh my gosh, I, I don't even know anything about this world. This is this was a guy who very much knew about how tickets worked. He also had developed a, a really good network. He had a, a, a lot of folks that he knew and was able to reach out to and an entrepreneurial community of people who were both able to come in and be fellow speakers alongside Tim Ferriss, but also to queue up to be attendees, to be part of this event. And also he had what I think was a, a very useful perspective, which is for the first event, at least, because he mastermind talks became an ongoing multi-year venture. He decided optimizing for profit was not the goal the first year. Now, he charged a significant price, but he raised it in later years. What he said was, it's not so much about making a huge amount of money the first year, but the goal is to create an incredible experience and something that that people would be desperate to go back to because they loved it so much and to capture all of it on film and photos because he said, if you do it right the first time, it sells itself forever. So he had a back end where he sold access to it as well to the recording? No, actually, specifically what I meant was promotional footage so that he was able to create marketing materials that would, for future years, just be like, wow, oh my gosh, I have to be there. And so he was ultimately, I'm not... I have not followed it closely what transpired during COVID, although I'm sure he was not having these gatherings in 2020. Prior to that, he was charging, I think, upwards of $7,500 per ticket. So it's nearly as much as TED or some of these other extremely elite conferences. So he had built an, an incredibly successful business for himself. Today's technology really allows people to participate in these side ventures and derive other streams of revenue and income for people who are even 
been working full-time jobs or people who decide they want to go all in or people who, like yourself, were had no choice because of a layoff at, at your job and you decide you've got to figure out how to make this work. What do you find that is so much easier for people to get started now than, say, 10 years ago in the space of being an entrepreneur and monetizing expertise? I think one of the easiest things is the fact that I've, over the years, a framework about how one can become a recognized expert in your field. And one of the key pillars of it is content creation. And the reason that this is something that's actually quite important is that ultimately, unless you forever want to be bounded by just the people that you already know knowing you, and maybe telling somebody here or there, you need to do something to make it so that people who don't know you can discover you. Word of mouth only travels so far and so fast if it's on a person-to-person basis. And so therefore, content is what allows your message to travel to far more people and be shared far more easily. Now, it is true that, of course, there's a huge amount of competition because, yeah, everybody has an Instagram account, everybody's blogging or having a podcast or whatever. So that is true. But also, the democratization of it is incredibly powerful because it means if you are smart enough about targeting your niche effectively and or if you are just smart enough to persevere and create high quality content, that creates a mechanism of discoverability so that high level people can find you that just literally never would have been able to find you previously unless you had somehow been tapped on the shoulder by the powers that be. And how do you apply this on a day to day, month to month basis in order to leverage the content that you create and put it in front of posted in places that people who you want to attract and want to interact with it are able to find it and find their way to you so that you could build that relationship. In my case, there's a lot of different ways that one can do this. I use the phrase content creation advisedly because I'm not wedded to a particular medium. It's fine. People say, oh, but I'm not a writer. It's fine. You don't have to be a writer. It's about sharing your ideas in whatever way is most appropriate. And in my case, though, I actually was a writer. I was a newspaper reporter and got laid off, as you were alluding to. And so it was just not that hard, relatively, for me to be writing articles. So I decided that would be the vehicle that I would go deep on rather than some of the other alternatives. And so in the early days of my business, I was I was writing articles for my own blog. I would post an article on LinkedIn or something like that. But the goal, of course, is that over time, you want to level up to more and more prestigious publications. That is the goal. Because nobody's reading your blog unless they're already looking for you. What you want to do is be writing in places where people can find you. So in, in my particular case, what that meant was the first place I was able to break in was the Huffington Post, which doesn't now have outside contributors, but but used to. And then I started writing for Harvard Business Review. I started writing for... And I was doing it very extensively and very aggressively. It was a process. It was a very targeted and systematic process trying to break in to those publications. And it took several years to do it. When everyone is as open and direct as you are, we all learn that it takes many years to become an overnight success. It wasn't simply, oh, I need to go and be in front of people on Forbes and you write and get a column. It doesn't happen that way, but it does give in and relent to that dedicated focus. So Dory, what is it that excites you most about your work today? And here we are in the spring of 2021. And as you look out and look ahead, what is it that excites you about your work and the opportunities 
for making a contribution in the world today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. One of the things that has been a great source of pleasure to me over the past five years, and I write about this, sort of the genesis of it in Entrepreneurial You, but it's just sort of accelerated since then, is the creation of my online course and community, which is called Recognized Expert. It started out, and I I tell this story in Entrepreneurial You, as just this idea of, hey, I want to do a course, I'll do a pilot. And so I describe this process of creating this 40-person pilot and test it and seeing, is anybody interested in figuring out how to launch it? But in the intervening years, it's now been five years since I created the community. More than 600 people have been through the program and they have lifetime membership in it. So actually a pretty large number stay active and we do these monthly webinars. We actually did one earlier today. We had 50 people on the call just getting to know each other and connecting. And it's been really amazing to create a community where the focus is about just creating an atmosphere of generosity and sharing and people who are trying to grow their platform to get their ideas better known, just helping each other and being being open about that process. Because the thing that drives me bonkers is when people are successful, but then they try to essentially pull up the ladder behind them or hide how they did it, or they, they want to obfuscate or something like that. It's just, I just want to punch them. It's just so insulting. And so I, I think it's really important for people to help other people and and be as transparent as possible about the information about what it actually really takes. Otherwise, nobody's going to learn. It it all becomes myth and legend rather than reality. Yeah, exactly. So can you give me an example of somebody in your community who was able to persist and achieved his or her own breakthrough? Yeah, somebody who I'm actually super excited about, and, and I feature him in my new book. In our next conversation, we can talk even more about it. But in my new book, The Long Game, somebody that I actually profile is the journey of my friend, Ron Carucci. And Ron, who's in fact on the call today, we work together. I've been coaching him for over five years, I think nearly six. And when he came to me, he was, Ron has always been great at what he does. He's a consultant. He's a management consultant. He runs a boutique firm and called Navalent. And he was wonderful with his clients, but he was not getting the volume of clients in that he wanted. And he was not getting the quality. Like he just, he wanted to work with amazing people on high level problems. And sometimes he was, but he wanted more of the great, interesting stuff where he could really make a difference. And so he knew that somehow he needed to raise his profile so that more of those awesome people could find him. And so we started working together and I read his stuff and I'm like, oh my God, this is brilliant. This is so good. But the problem was, and every, everybody has their own constellation of things, but the, the problem here was that he had been really great about creating lots of content, but he hadn't done the part where you share it with broader audiences. Like it was all on his blog. It was all on a news, his newsletter. And so his clients knew he was amazing, but nobody else did. So I worked with Ron. And so in the intervening years, he has now started writing for Harvard Business Review regularly, he started writing for Forbes. He got a book contract. He has a, a wonderful new book that's going to be coming out uh, next month. It's coming out in May called To Be Honest, which is a, a look at some proprietary research he did around business ethics and the causes of corruption and malfeasance in companies and how to how leaders can take action to avoid that and prevent that and to create a more ethical culture. It's 
fantastic to see what he's done. He's done multiple TEDx talks. He's spoken at Google. He's just really dramatically grown his brand and his platform. And it's enabling him to have a far greater impact than he was before and to share his gift. Say, Dory, are you ready for the Mike Quest for the Best lightning round? Oh my gosh, hit me. All right. So in the beginning of the interview, we talked about and asked you who was someone who influenced you growing up. And you talked about Tony Robbins. When you were a teenager, Dory, what's a song that you absolutely loved? A song that I loved as a teenager, I was a huge Indigo Girls fan. So I will say Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls. How's that go? How does it go? Yeah. I'm trying to, if you're trying to get me to sing, I'm trying to tell you something about my life. Maybe give me insight between black and white. Yeah, that's awesome. If you had to pick the one area that you use to get your mission out each week and were to double down on it, which would be the one area that you found is the most productive for you at this stage of your career and given the opportunities that you have? Oh, boy. I still think that my favorite and probably the most high impact now that I've wheedled my way into work, working with high-profile publications, I'm still writing regularly for Harvard Business Review and Fast Company, is just publishing articles regularly. I think that probably is the, the, the best way to continue to get the ideas out there. What would you say is the best business advice you ever received? It's the business advice that everybody has received now, which is don't have an office. You can save so much money when you don't have an office. And in the last six months or so, what would you say is the best $100 purchase you've made? So in the last six months, I'll even, this is not going to show up on audio, but I'll do a demo. I have these little slippers, these little Japanese slippers from, there's a store called Muji, which is fantastic. They have a number of them in New York, but it's a sort of international chain and they have a lot of them in Asia. And these slippers cost, I don't know, $15 and I keep them under my desk and like pretty much all I do now is just sit on my desk and Zoom calls. But my desk is by the window and it gets cold in the winter. And so having these little Japanese slippers are so fantastic. And every day you're just rewarded for that, that investment. That's terrific. So when you think about it, and maybe you're laying your head on the pillow each night, how do you know you've been successful in the day when you reflect back on it? So it depends on how high the bar is for that day. Because honestly, uh, some days I will start the day. And unfortunately, it's not like you want your life to be like this. But some days you have eight meetings back to back. And the there's just not time for anything besides that. And so at that point, success is, oh, okay, did I stand anyone up? Did I double book anything? Oh, did I actually complete all of the things that I committed to? Is, is anyone angry at me? No? Okay, yay, I did it. Uh, so sometimes that's the win. But but yeah, in general, I like I love having the feeling of either having created something or having crossed uh, a sort of major project off my list. If I can do, that's wonderful. But short of that, I'd say if no one's really mad at me for something, then that's a win. <laughs> We're always told that you need to add to your mindset, add to your daily routine, this and that. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction just by, by leaving it behind? Yeah, that's great. In terms of leaving behind things that, that I have done, I, I think, honestly, like everybody else, I'm showering less. <laughs> I'm sure I'll probably pick that back up when I actually have to see other humans. But above and beyond that, I think that just 
get having so many Zoom meetings, just so many of them, really has forced me to be much more disciplined about turn, turning down non-essential Zoom calls. Even when it's like a nice person and they want to you know, have a chit chat or something like that, I've had to become really mercenary because there is only so much screen time a human can stand. But a, a mutual friend of ours was sharing that he, he found it very beneficial to dress up for his Zoom meetings. And he was telling his wife how he likes to put on a, a suit for a Zoom meeting and it helps get him in a state where he could really be at his best and make the most contribution. And his wife says, oh, really, honey, is that why you're doing everything in this routine right now? And it was, well, yeah. He says, do you realize you're putting on cologne for a Zoom meeting? <laughs> I just thought that was terrific. Exactly. <laughs> so, Dory, you have been so generous and helpful with uh, me today sharing on my quest for the best. I want to thank you so much for starting with reminding us uh, the impact that a book can make for everyone out there who creates books like Tony Robbins did, who a, a friend of your mother's or a mother of one of your friends was able to gift you that book when you were 13 and the difference it made in your life trajectory, understanding that you don't always have to react the same way. You can actually choose your response to different events in, our lo- in your life and understanding how the pandemic has changed things, but also plays into the fact that people are consuming more and more content. And that if you're interested in doing this type of work and building a a side business or even a side hustle, there's so much to be learned and that you lay out both in stories as well as tactics in Entrepreneurial You. We talked about Jared Kleinhart's mistake, and let's just say it's his lesson where he learned that there are key steps to not overlook in building um, an online product. And then also the big risk that Jason Gaynard had made, Gaynard made in investing $84,000 when he was in debt at over $250,000 and actually purchased Tim Ferriss's time in addition to a, a huge quantity of books in order to have him participate in his mastermind talks. And that kicked off a whole line of revenue as well as a career path for him for several years. So Dory, for these reasons and so many more, I just want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you so much. It's a treat to get to talk to you. And I'll I'll just mention that for your listeners that are interested, I have an 88-question free self-assessment around entrepreneurial you and how you can think about creating new income streams in your own business. And folks can get that for free at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. That was the next part. Dory, where can we find out more about you and your work online so that people can learn from the wealth of resources you have available and the different offerings that you have? Amazing, Bill. Thank you so much. For folks who are interested, I have a free 88-question entrepreneurial use self-assessment, and it walks you through ways that you can think about creating multiple revenue streams in your own business, and it's available at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. We're going to link to that in the show notes, as well as your social media, as well as places where you prominently list your articles that you share on all different social media platforms and your books on Amazon, because there are three of them, folks. And Entrepreneurial You is the third in the trilogy. And you know what? There's more to come. So with that, Dory Clark, author of Entrepreneurial You, I want to thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thanks. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. 
please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.